Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, September 23rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. A truce between social media companies and advertisers over harmful content. A UN group has a grim report on COVID-19's jobs impact. And will they or won't they? The Bank of England gives us some clues about negative interest rates. Plus, London is the financial hub of the European Union. But what's the game plan post-Brexit? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Back at the start of the summer, more than 200 companies pulled their advertising from Facebook. This was at the height of the George Floyd protests, and the companies had some real problems with the posts Facebook allowed on its site. Hate speech, aggressive content, stuff that companies don't want to see their ads appearing next to. But now, companies and social media sites have come to an agreement on posting standards. The World Federation of Advertisers helped negotiate the deal between companies like Mars and Unilever and social media groups such as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The deal sets some ground rules on what counts as hate speech, and it gives external auditors an easier way to report harmful content. The system they do that through will launch in the second half of next year. Plus, the social media platforms have committed to developing tools that give companies more control over what their advertising is placed against. YouTube has this in place. Facebook and Twitter will develop a roadmap by the end of the year. Unilever said the developments have given them confidence to start spending ad money on these platforms again. Mars said it's not declaring victory until the solutions were implemented, but called the deal an important milestone. A UN group says the pandemic will destroy at least 100 million jobs this year, and it'll push between 90 million and 120 million people in the developing world into absolute poverty. The UN Conference on Trade Development called it another lost decade for the developing world, as rising spending on health, declining tax revenues, a collapse in export earnings, and pending debt repayments take a toll. And now, the developing world is looking at a financing gap of between two and three trillion dollars. The Bank of England has been flirting with the idea of negative interest rates. But yesterday, BOE Governor Andrew Bailey closed the door on the possibility, at least for the foreseeable future. The FT's economics editor, Chris Giles, explains why the central bank is holding off on the idea. Well, Mark, Andrew Bailey was at pains to say that the Bank of England was not trying to send a signal last week when it set up a review into how it could implement negative rates. This was just a technical exercise and you had to know how to do it before you could even take a decision whether to do it. And so yesterday's speech or webinar by Andrew Bailey essentially tried to put the record straight. What he said was, of course, he said it would be a cardinal sin to have that if you were not sure you could implement it and you were not sure the banking system would be able to withstand a a zero or negative rate. Now, Chris, over the past few days, we've seen the UK announce new restrictions with the government worried about how COVID-19 is going to progress over the next few months. Does the virus affect the central bank's approach at all? Well, it's very clear that the Bank of England isn't the driving force of the response to COVID. Uh, It's the government and it's fiscal policy, not monetary policy that's driving. Monetary policy will try and be as supportive as it can be. So 
really the toolbox exists as it exists at the moment is of two aspects. One is that there would be more quantitative easing, so more money printing to flood into the economy to help the government if it wanted to expand fiscal policy more aggressively again. And secondly, there's really sort of jawboning or communication or guidance, as the Bank of England likes to call it, a little bit like the Fed, but not as formal. So the Bank of England would like to think it has a policy of keeping interest rates extremely low until there's very, very strong signs that the economy could withstand an interest rate rise. And that is what the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said again on Tuesday. It's not a formal change in the remit in the way the Fed had a formal change of its policy, but the bank is sort of giving a nod and a wink that that's the way it's thinking at the moment. The UK and the EU are in the middle of an ugly breakup, and it's still unclear how Westminster's decision to breach international law will affect the Brexit trade deal the two sides are working on. One thing is certain, though. The EU needs to figure out how to operate without London as its financial center. But how does the EU go about doing that? And will London's influence completely vanish? Here to answer those questions is Sam Fleming, our Brussels bureau chief, Sam, what are some of the steps the EU is taking to brace itself for when the UK formally leaves the EU? Well, there are some things that they need to do and have already made clear they will do, which is just there to ensure financial stability and make sure there isn't a major wrenching disruption to business, uh, financial business, when this uh, end of transition period happens. The Commission decided on Monday to allow European banks to continue accessing UK-based clearing houses until the middle of 2022. So there are preparatory steps being taken, but the bigger picture is that Europe has to make some fairly significant decisions as to how it wants to manage the relationship with uh, the city on on an ongoing basis. So Sam, it's really not just Brexit, though, that we're talking about here. There are a few other things going on. Obviously, there's COVID-19, there's the rising tensions between the U.S. and China, and all the while, the EU is trying to become an autonomous economy. So how is it going about this as it approaches its its Brexit talks with the, the U.K.? This very much goes to the heart of the EU's reflection at the moment. As you say, it's thinking about how does it ensure that it stands on its own two feet in the world. Financial services has become part of this thinking as well. And this feeds into this whole debate about Brexit and the UK becoming a third country. The EU has long wanted much better, uh, more diverse financial uh, markets, capital markets in particular. It's a very bank-reliant financial system. It wants companies to have a broader access uh, to other forms of financial services and, and capital raising. And so this is a, long, a long-term a debate, which has now gained added urgency because of this strategic autonomy idea, the idea that uh, the EU can't afford to rely on other parts of the world in a way which leaves it badly exposed and particularly can't afford to rely on a UK that at the moment appears perfectly willing to break international law. It makes it a very unreliable partner. So we've talked about how the EU is affected if London leaves. How is London affected by all this? Is its value truly lost here? Well, certainly not, because uh, any migration of activity from London to 
the European Union will only take place over a long period of time. But I think the broader message here, and what certainly from our reporting has been that a lot of people really question how dramatic the change, in the short term at least, will be for the City of London. It just takes a long time to generate a financial centre, and especially takes a very long time to grow a a truly global international financial centre. You can't do it overnight. If you think about the ecosystem in the City of London of lawyers and other consultants and so on, who all services, uh, financial services companies, this has taken a very, very long time indeed to develop. And so many of the people we've spoken to are cautious when they say, well, you know, the City of London is doomed. They're not predicting that. What people do think is that the European Union is now beginning to gear up for a strategic debate about the extent to which it can continue to rely on the City of London for such a broad range of financial services and what within that panoply of financial services needs to be pulled back to the European Union, at least in part. And that's the big debate which is going to play out really, I think, for many years to come. Sam Fleming is our Brussels bureau chief. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Mark. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.